It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Okay, while、well, some women wait for their boyfriend or girlfriend, okay, to get down on one knee and pop the big question, they ponder such issues like Do I want a princess or emerald cut? How much is he going to spend? And then there's my college friend, Lori, who once said, I hope he knows anything under two carats is a friendship ring. I know that's so obnoxious and rude, but、um, my guest today had a totally different problem she faced when thinking about the engagement ring. When Beth Gerstein was anticipating her own engagement, she began researching the jewelry industry and found it nearly impossible to find an ethically sourced engagement ring. Instead of shrugging her shoulders and agreeing to sport a gem that may or may not have been mined using you know, child labor, she decided to do something about it. With zero, okay, zero experience in the jewelry industry, she founded ethical jewelry company Brilliant Earth from her one bedroom apartment and then grew it into a publicly traded company that today has 370,000 customers in more than 50 countries. You've got to hear how she made it happen. Beth, welcome to Everyone Talks to Liz. Thanks, Liz. I'm happy to be here. I, I mean, I just threw out a, a bunch of phrases and words that didn't even exist just a couple of decades ago. But I mean, you helped to create an entire new lexicon in the jewelry industry. I mean, lab grown diamonds, conflict free gems, blockchain enabled diamonds, so their origin can be traced to make sure they're ethically sourced. This is amazing to me.、Uh, I really want to find out from you how you did this. And when you look back, What a journey, right? It has definitely been a journey. We started this company in, in 2005. And when we first started telling people what we were trying to do, we got a lot of blank stares. So, absolutely, I think these terms <laughs> that feel like no brainers in terms of what consumers are looking for today, a lot of people, I think, didn't realize just how important it was that people. Had a, an ethical engagement ring and an ethical diamond to be able to represent their values. I really want to stress something here because if we have some guys or some women who don't care at all about diamonds or engagement rings, you still have to listen because no matter what industry you're in or do care about, it's badly in need of modernization, which is exactly what Beth found when she started researching jewelry. So I really want to, though, begin with how your brain actually began working. You were a grinder since you were a little girl, right? I mean, growing up in Maryland, you, you were babysitting at age 12, you were tutoring, working in a daycare. What drove you to have those first job experiences at such an early age? I've always, I think, had a lot of internal drive and motivation. I think I'm an inherently competitive person. And, you know, my parents, you know, we grew up very middle class, so we didn't have a ton of money. And so the way for me to be able to buy the things that I wanted and accomplish what I wanted to do, I had to do that on my own. And so from the beginning, you know, I, I think I was creative about just applying for jobs and tutoring and. You know, we didn't have things like Craigslist back then. So I had to hustle in order to get my tutoring jobs. But you now it was a way for me to kind of chart my own path. 
Hustling is a muscle, isn't it? And as it grows and the more you do it, you become stronger and gutsier, right? I mean, it feeds on itself. Absolutely. And, you know, we really started this company with the hustle because we bootstrapped Brilliant Earth from the beginning. It was about how do you find customers and make sure that your message is resonating. I think if we had raised a lot of money, like a lot of other companies do, perhaps we wouldn't be the kind of hustlers and Mm -hmm. quite as, I think, crafty as, as we are today. Well, there is a lot to be said for really starting at the bottom, because as you build it, you know what the rivets are. You know uh, the specs of the pieces of plywood that you use to build it. It's not just breezing right in because somebody gave you the money or the or the house or the structure that was built. But what I find interesting is you actually majored uh, and got your degree in electrical and biomedical engineering from Duke. Uh, You must have been, you know, oftentimes for people our age like that, you know, you're one of the few females in there. Why did you pick those two concepts? Well, you know, one, I, I thought that it was an interesting overall topic. I thought the idea of kind of creating this bionic person and prosthetics was really interesting to me <laughs> from a, a mission standpoint, but also understanding how technology evolves. And, you know, really at that point, I don't think I had, frankly, much of an idea of, of what it all entailed, but it, it sounded like it was climbing the tallest mountain and really challenging myself as much as I could. And, you know, that's really, you know, engineering to me is all about really thinking through incredibly complex problems. Yeah, but then you you went to MIT. I, I mean, I'm looking at MIT. The, I lived in Boston. Can I just say I covered news in Boston for Channel 7, WHDH. I think our motto was first at six, correct at 11. I mean, we were really <laughs> aggressive, but we would go all the time to the schools around there, Northeastern, Harvard, MIT, covering all kinds of stories. The kids at MIT, wow, brainiacs. What brought you there? Um, I think at that point, I wasn't ready to enter the workforce. I was 19 when I graduated from college, so I was definitely on the younger side. And, you know, the fact, frankly, that I got into MIT, once you get into MIT, that's basically, there's no more decision to be made. I think you're right. Like it's the most spectacular people, the smartest people, the most humble. It was just an amazing education and chance to just explore kind of the most, I think, challenging of challenging. Mm-hmm. And and, it, and I think it gave me a little time to kind of figure out what my next move was. But and I think I- you're right. Like there, there really aren't very many women. Mm-hmm. You know, I think in my class for electrical engineering there in the uh, master's postgraduate program, maybe there were six of us. Mm. It was it was a really, you know, that can be very intimidating. Well, I think what's interesting, though, is that as you forged ahead, not only did you find out what you wanted to challenge yourself with, you then found out what you kind of didn't want to do. Because after MIT, you, you worked at a startup in San Diego, right? You were recruited by one. But then you say, wait a minute, I think I want to go to business school. What motivated that decision? You know, ultimately decided to go to business school to see if I could get a broader set of skills and think about something more entrepreneurial, which is really what I ended up doing. But entrepreneurial is one thing. Starting a lab-grown diamond company is another. You've got to explain that moment, the genesis of 
brilliant earth and where he realized, wait a minute, why can't I find what I want? Yeah. So I, um, when I was going through my own engagement ring purchasing um, journey, had just found that whenever I would walk into jewelers, I'd ask them, where do your diamonds come from? I had just learned about some of the atrocities surrounding the diamond industry, whether it's environmental issues, human rights issues, child labor, blood diamonds, all of those had been making the headlines. And whenever I would go in to these jewelers, I would just get very unsatisfactory answers, typically, oh, this isn't anything you need to worry about, but there's just no real meat behind it. And I was talking to my co-founder and he had done a business plan while he was at Stanford on thinking about an ethical segment within jewelry. And it just clicked. And the two of us decided to start Brilliant Earth. You know, we weren't, we didn't start it with the intention of going public 17 years later. We really started <laughs> it because we saw a huge need. The industry itself did not have their eyes open. And we just said, hey, why don't we start a company? At that point in time, it was pretty cheap. You you know, needed Wi-Fi. You could create a website pretty cheaply. And we just decided, hey, let's try it out. Let's see if there are customers for this and see what happens. And yeah, it's, well, it's amazing where we are today. Okay, so you're in your one-bedroom apartment in the San Francisco area, and you have no income, and you're trying to figure out how to get this off the ground. And we didn't have any connections into the diamond industry. And this is a very relationship-driven industry. So that was really the toughest thing. You know, we did a bunch of internet searches. We were really naive back then because we thought, oh, we have this great idea. We're just going to call up a diamond supplier. Of course, they're going to want to sell diamonds to us. They obviously want more customers. And so we would cold call a bunch of our suppliers and said, hey, we're trying to offer ethically sourced diamonds on the internet. And both of those things were very scary for the entire diamond industry. And I think we got a lot of hangups back then. (laughs) Um, Ultimately, we ended up pitching a supplier in Montreal. We flew up there. We did this killer presentation and we had him agree to sell to us which was like what we thought was a huge feat, but definitely that supplier was the hardest thing. And then interestingly enough, that supplier, of course, didn't work out. You know, we of course. we had a really challenging business relationship and of course made a lot of mistakes along the way, but it got us our foot in the door, which I think is important. And I think the fact that we were outsiders made us, I think, much better because we questioned everything, the experience, you know, what is it that customers are looking for? Just everything from the digital experience to the product to the ethical sourcing. I feel like we had a a new way of looking at things just because we didn't know traditionally Mm -hmm. how it was supposed to be. We're not done yet. We'll be back in a moment. I know a lot of you have had this experience because for those of us who in 2020 were all sent home and we were stuck in a lockdown during the pandemic, we had a lot of time on our hands and I saw an ad for Masterclass and I thought, I want to better myself. I want access to all of these brilliant people who 
teach you things. With Masterclass, you can learn from the best to become your best. Masterclass is the only streaming platform where you can learn and grow with more than 200 plus of the world's best and smartest. For just under 10 bucks a month, an annual membership with Masterclass gets you unlimited access to every instructor. And I don't care. You can wake up one morning and say, I want to learn about business. And then another where you say, I want to learn how to survive in the wild if I have no water and no fire to make me warm. You can access Masterclass on your phone, on your computer, smart TV, or even in audio mode. And the classes totally make a difference. Don't wait another moment to start your learning journey with Masterclass. Right now, our listeners get an additional 15% off any annual membership at masterclass.com slash Liz. That's 15% off at masterclass.com slash Liz. Masterclass.com slash Liz. Let me just educate our listeners. You don't say, okay, but do you sell real diamonds? Lab-grown diamonds are actual diamonds. They are the exact same elements, right? You you take a they seed, a tiny slice of a mined diamond. So you don't want to say real diamond, a mined diamond. And then you you put it under the same kind of pressure that takes millions and millions of years to create a mined diamond that's found in the earth, correct? Yep, that's right. And that takes a lot of effort and knowledge and understanding and creation, does it not? How did you start to work on getting lab-grown diamonds that you could then put into, and by the way, recycled metal rings? Well, you know, from the beginning, actually, we offered recycled precious metals. That was very early on because what we wanted to offer was the complete package. Mm -hmm. We wanted the diamonds to be beyond conflict-free for the ring to make sure it was recycled given gold mining is actually quite a destructive mining industry. And lab diamonds, there was this huge promise of lab diamonds, even frankly in the 60s, but they had just started to become a reality. And we were actually one of, if not the first to offer lab created diamonds in the US. We offered it in 2012, so 10 years ago. Mm. And we always thought like these absolutely are real diamonds, same optical, physical, chemical properties as a natural mine diamond. And a lot of customers are gonna appreciate that you don't need to have any mining involved. Um, and what we found was there was this kind of young and growing market, and that market has just been growing steadily every year. Okay, so beginnings are hard. Let's be really honest. When you started selling these, what kind of business did you do the first year? And and this podcast is all about letting our listeners know just how hard beginnings can be. Well, you know, I wouldn't say like the first year it, it was a massive revenue driver. But what we found was that there's consumer interest. And so for us, it's really about how do you build very steadily year after year, not kind of grow into this explosive growth, which by the way, is very hard to manage. You want to make sure you get the right customer experience, the right quality of product. So, you know, that was our way. We're really about testing and learning as a company and because we didn't have a huge history as a company, we had a lot more leeway than some of the big competitors, the big incumbents, where, you know, they're much more fear of trying new things. And for us, we didn't have a lot to lose, frankly. And I think that always gives you as a young company an advantage. Yeah. 
But when you enter a very established industry, boy, the knives come out, don't they? We are at the Fox Business Studios, just so people can visualize this. We're on 6th Avenue between 47th and 48th. 47th Street is the diamond district of the entire country. Every single store on there, on that street, is diamonds, diamonds, diamonds. I know for a fact they were in a full-blown panic when millennials decided, why am I spending more for a mined diamond when a lab-grown diamond has the same properties, as you say, but also it can be traced? We know that the money that comes from, well, when you talk about conflict diamonds, they're called conflict diamonds because the money then finances civil wars in, you know, some third world nations, right? So, you know, they were out to get you because even with a loop put up to their eye, they couldn't tell the difference between a lab-grown and a mine diamond, right? Yep, that's right. I think, well, for I would say that very early on, we had a very negative reaction, even when we were just trying to sell ethically sourced beyond conflict-free because the industry didn't want to actually own up to some of the challenges. And the movie Blood Diamond came out. That was obviously, you know, early in our existence and many Leo, years ago. Leo now. DiCaprio. I love that movie. Absolutely. And there was so much fear that was in the industry. And, you know, we thought of this as a way to really tell the positive stories about diamonds and really some of the good that diamonds can do. Um, but I think you're right. In some ways, it put us on the map because a lot of people in the industry didn't like that we were speaking out. And so there are all these articles that were written about us. And that press was really helpful for us. It gave us more visibility. All of a sudden, as I said, it put us on the map. And that was actually, I think, a great launching pad. But beyond that, you know, our approach has really been, hey, let's put our heads down Let's do the work. Let's grow steadily because ultimately like having a big target on your back is 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 never the great way to play it, you know, especially as a younger mm. company. But, you know, a, a part of this big industry is that you got to go to jewelry shows. Could you get in in the early years? Did they even let you yeah, in? Yeah, that, that was a really tough one. We thought, of course, we're going to go to Las Vegas. There's this massive jewelry show. <laughs> and in order to get into Vegas, you need to have sold $10,000 of diamonds. And that number felt so insurmountable to us at the time. Were you like, Mom, Dad, can you just buy one of these things so I can get into the show? <laughs> that It goes back to our hustling comment. Like, you really have to hustle. We, we made a few sales, um, really hustled to make sure, obviously did not try and get a, a profit at that point. But we were very lucky to get into the show. And that, I think, helped to allow us to, to talk to more suppliers, to establish these relationships, to offer recycled gold and things that really hadn't been offered before. Where'd the name Brilliant Earth come from? That was me and my co-founder talking about how can we really bring to light what makes us special, which is our sustainability message. You know, the fact that a diamond is literally a brilliant piece of earth. You know, we thought that the idea was brilliant. So it has a lot of meanings for us. You know, my name is Beth, my co-founder is Eric. So that was a, a coincidence. Oh, but okay. really, we wanted just to remind people of, of you know, the, the beauty of the earth and how brilliant 
diamonds can be and and the idea overall. What was that sort of moment in time that crystallized in your mind, wait, this is actually working? Was there one particular sale or I don't know, was it a celebrity? Who knows where, where you made one sale of a ring or a necklace or something where you said, wow, this feels right now. I remember when we saw a $20,000 sale come through (gasps) online, like purely online. Like we hadn't talked to them. It was just, you know, right from the website. And I remember like celebrating with my co-founder, we were (laughs) jumping up and down. And that was a really important moment. You know, and I, we had a lot of conversation with customers where they would say, I wasn't going to buy a diamond until I found you guys. And, and that's when you realize, wow, this is resonating. This is something, a, a real need that exists in the market. And we are being able to, to be that provider. And as you expand, people don't have to just take that leap of faith by looking at something on the web. You now have 20 showrooms. So these are brick and mortar showrooms where people can look, see, decide, I don't know, put their teeth on it. Is that? Oh, no, that's pearls. That's that's until <laughs> if they're real. But, uh, you know, the showroom growth, what are you expecting there? What, how does that fit into your overall picture? We really see the fine jewelry purchase being a true omni-channel experience. It's very considered. People really want to be able to trust the provider they're working with. They like to be able to touch and feel the product. Mm-hmm. And so for us, having a really seamless digital and showroom experience that was joyful, that was personalized, is the way that we're going to win the customer. And so we've been opening these showrooms slowly but steadily, you know, very early on. What we, the reason we opened our San Francisco showroom, which was very early in our existence, was we'd have customers call us and say, oh, you're in San Francisco? Well, what, can I see it? Can I see the diamond? We, ended up making this makeshift showroom, which is really just a dining room table in an office with all of our settings on top. And the conversion that we saw just blew our minds. Okay. So we decided at that point, like this, this is, I think, the real model. Are you guys listening to this? I mean, this is how you do it. You just forge ahead. I have to know what went through your mind when you finally publicly listed your company, it became a publicly traded company and last year, right? So what was that moment like? It was unbelievable. It was really something special, you know, being able to ring the bell at the NASDAQ. I had my two kids, my daughter who's 11 and my son who just turned 13 And it just felt like... Well, I'm doing the math. You were really a fledgling business as you were pregnant then, right? I mean, this they've watched from day one how hard you've worked. Oh, I remember being in appointments with customers when I was like seven months pregnant with my daughter. (laughs) So they have been there from the beginning. I mean, I think of Brilliant Earth as as my third child, really. Um, But I think that's an exciting thing. Like, I try and involve them when I'm making business decisions and... I think it was special for them, too. It's, I think, just nothing I would ever have imagined when I started Brilliant Earth from my apartment. But every year, it just felt like it was building, and it was building more and more, and it was like no moment I've ever experienced. So what's the message to listeners who dream of being their own kind of Beth Gerstein? I think 
you know, so much of it is just perseverance. Of course, it takes some luck having a team, you know, you need to have the right product market fit, but it's really about how do you test and learn, listen to your customers and continue to grow and scale kind of year after year. I wish there was a shortcut, but you know, if there's anything in my journey that Brilliant Earth has taught me, it's just just that continual growth is so important. Yeah, everybody should stop looking for shortcuts. Okay, I'm in my, I don't know, 34th year of broadcasting. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, took me, it's taken me three decades to become an overnight sensation. Um, it's really, it, it is a great message that you give. I know people are going to kill me if I don't ask you Two more questions. Number one, the cost differential between a mined diamond and a lab-grown one. It's a better value, isn't it? It is a it is a better value, though I do think that there's so much emotional importance that and so much kind of decision-making behind the scenes. You have to really buy what feels right for you. But, you know, it can be a 30% plus um discount to mm -hmm. to buy a lab grown versus a natural. Okay. And my second and last question, what did you choose finally for your engagement ring? I want to know the style, the side, the whole thing. Well, I chose a cushion-shaped natural diamond actually. Okay. And with a custom design setting that actually I worked on with my with the with a designer here. So I've upgraded my engagement ring since kind of the early days, which was a lot more classic, just a solitaire. Mm -hmm. And now I, you know, something I, I think reflects our amazing design capabilities at Brilliant Earth. And the lab-grown diamonds, you wear those as well? Oh, yeah. I have lab-grown stud earrings. Like, I, I have a lot of jewelry that is lab-grown, just like I have a lot of jewelry that's natural. And no one can tell. No one can tell the difference. That's right. Beth, I'll, I'll tell you what we can tell as far as the difference is concerned, your stick to as you say, your persistence, and as you forge ahead, we wish you the best of luck. I, I, I just think the idea is, well, shall we say brilliant? Brilliant Earth <laughs> co-founder so and much. CEO, Beth Gerstein. Thank you for telling your story. It's great to be here. Oh, I, you know, you know what I hate, you guys? I hate that I love diamonds. I hate that I fall into that female. Ooh, look at shiny, glittery object. <laughs> but I do. I love diamonds. Like, forget the rubies. I need the diamonds. Uh, great. We all deserve beautiful things. I so know. I don't think we should ever feel guilty about that. Okay. No, guilt is, is a wasted emotion as far as I'm concerned. Uh, our thanks to Beth. And I just want to say our thanks to my producer of the podcast, Grace Cannon. She is <laughs> off to Something, I hope not better, because aren't I the best, Grace? Oh, my God. Um, but we wish her the best of luck. And don't worry, we will continue to bring you the amazing stories, these aspirational stories of success. You can't find them anywhere else. We have the biggest library in the world of these stories. Uh, I have nothing to back that statement up, but I'm going with it. Thank you. Uh, and I hope you'll come with me along for the ride right here on Everyone Talks to Liz. And of course, I'll see you at 3 p.m. Eastern, Monday through Friday on Fox Business. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.